Word on Fire is brought to you by Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Chicago area since 1837. This is Cardinal Francis George, and I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Father Barron will challenge us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents The Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, how strange this feast would have sounded to someone in the ancient world. We're celebrating this Sunday the feast of the exaltation of the cross. The triumph of the cross? This would have been, for ancient people, precisely analogous to someone speaking today of the triumph of the electric chair or the triumph and exaltation of the noose. The cross terrified people in ancient Greco-Roman times. And that was the entire point of it. The cross was, if you want, state-sponsored terrorism. A form of capital punishment reserved for those who had, in the most egregious ways, undermined the authority of the Roman state. People condemned to this death were stripped of their clothes in order to humiliate them, then either tied or nailed to a cross, and essentially left very slowly and painfully to die, fully exposed to the glare of the public. The Romans always made sure that crosses were visible, erected at very public places. The whole idea was that people would watch you as you died in this terribly humiliating and painful way. What caused death on the cross? A very gradual process of asphyxiation. As the victim struggled to raise himself up to breathe, what was happening was you were being very slowly and painfully suffocated. If one was nailed to the cross... This process became unspeakably painful as well. Think of it as you're rocking your body up and down precisely on these nails that are in extremely sensitive parts of the body. Victims were known to linger on the cross for days. That's why, by the way, Pilate is so surprised when he learns that Jesus had died after only a few hours on the cross. People would spend days sometimes. When the person died, his body was typically left on the cross so that it might be consumed by birds and the dogs. The cross was terrible and it was meant to be terrible. The cross was humiliating. It was meant to be humiliating. It was a public display of Roman power and it was meant to strike fear in people's hearts. The cross was so terrible that when the Roman philosopher Cicero wanted to refer to someone who was crucified, he used this elaborate circumlocution so he wouldn't have to use the word crooks, cross. 
Our word excruciating, excruce, from the cross. So terrible was the cross that for the first several centuries of its existence, the church never depicted the crucified Jesus. The memory was just too fresh and too terrible in people's minds. So, the obvious question emerges. Why are we celebrating the cross's triumph? There is only one possible explanation. And I've been insisting on the terror of the cross to bring us to this point. The only possible explanation is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. All attempts to soft-pedal, to subjectivize, to explain away the resurrection are ruled out by this feast. If Jesus was simply a victim of that terrible cross and then fondly remembered by his followers, well, then we should all go home and Christianity ought to close up shop. Once the first Christians had taken in the experience of the resurrection, they turned with rapt attention back to that cross. I find this moment very interesting. Obviously, people recoiled in horror from the cross. Think of even Jesus' intimate disciples fleeing from the cross. No one wanted to linger there. No one wanted to think about a cross more deeply. You wanted to block it out of your mind. But once they had taken in the fact of the resurrection, they looked back at that cross, convinced that they would find something decisive there. Somehow they concluded, in the strange providence of God, that cross, with all its terror, was ingredient in the very process by which God was saving the world. Paul says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and somehow that cross had a lot to do with it. To see the first Christians wrestling with this problem, Seeking to understand the cross, one of the best places to look is our second reading for today. It's a hymn, scholars think, that early Christians were singing and that Paul adapted into his letter to the Philippians, a text written very early, sometime in the 50s of the first century, decades before the first gospel was written. What does Paul do in this famous hymn? He situates the cross within the context of a compelling narrative of God's dealing with the human race. Here's how it begins. Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not deem equality with God a thing to be grasped at. That's a very important line. We have to unpack it a little bit. What we're likely to miss is the implicit comparison with Adam, the first man, who's described in the book of Genesis as being made in the image of God. Paul's language here is morphe tuteu in his Greek. You could translate that as image of God, the form of God. The problem with Adam was, though he was made in the image and likeness of God, he did deem equality with God a thing to be grasped. Go right back now to the beginning of Genesis. 
That's what you see. Adam, made in God's likeness, seeks to become God. Eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Tries to arrogate to himself the power and prerogative and privilege of God. What happened? The fall. The fall is identical to this move. Oh, it's not just one particular sin. It's a whole attitude. Turning oneself into God. Grasping at divinity. On the biblical reading, human self-elevation is the problem. So what's the solution? Here's what Paul saw. Here's what the first Christian saw. The solution to human self-elevation is divine self-abnegation. To get this little rhythm is to get much of Christianity. Listen as the hymn goes on. Rather, he, Christ, emptied himself and took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. Here's where the great reversal commences. Human beings in Adam reached up to deify themselves. The solution, Paul's word here in Greek is kenosis. It means emptying. The solution to human self-elevation is a divine self-emptying. Adam tried to assume the form of God. God assumes the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. What happened thereby was a reversal of the momentum of sin. God seizing, as it were, this human self-elevation, stopping it and reversing it by his own self-abnegation. You know, think of this theme in terms of our ordinary experience. If you want to help a child, I mean really help him, not just judge him or point out his fault, you have to bend down and move into his world. Isn't it true? We're trying to teach a kid how to write or how to play a musical instrument or how to throw a baseball. You have to move into his world with all of its limitations, all of its weakness. You could point out, oh, you're not throwing that baseball right. Well, that doesn't help. You have to bend down, as it were, and enter into his world. This is doubly true if the child has done something wrong and hurt himself. You have to empty yourself and assume his state of being. Another kind of homey example, something's the matter with your car, well, you can curse it, you can point out the problem, or you can open the hood, roll up your sleeves, and get at it, most likely getting pretty dirty in the process. You won't really fix your car unless you enter into its dysfunction and thereby reverse it. Listen now as the hymn goes on. And it was thus that he humbled himself, obediently accepting even death, death on a cross. You can almost hear Paul lowering his voice as he says those last terrible words. Death on a cross. 
See, ancient people knew what that means. We think of the cross as a religious symbol, and it is, but they knew it as this terrible reality. What Paul means in the hymn is that the momentum of Christ's kenosis, his lowering, his self-emptying, carried him, listen, all the way to the limit of our fear, alienation, sin, and dysfunction. Christ entered in the most complete sense possible into our degradation. Why? Because he didn't come, as he himself said, primarily to judge us. He came to save us. He didn't come to pronounce how bad we are. He came to rescue us. He is, as Paul said, the new Adam. Adam reached up in human self-elevation. The new Adam is God reaching down. Yes, all the way down into our sin, fear, dysfunction, death, yes, even death on a cross. And that's why that terrible instrument of torture is the means by which God was reconciling the world to himself. That's why we Christians read the cross not as senseless tragedy, not as the triumph of human cruelty and oppression, but precisely as God's triumph over sin. That's why we celebrate the exaltation of the Holy Cross. What we're holding up is God's self-emptying, a self-emptying which has saved the world. And God bless you. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you.